Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey guys, welcome back to the Bustle Huddle. I'm your host, Caitlin Aber. This has been a really fun season. We've talked about dogs, babies, Dungeons and Dragons, But today we wanted to get a little bit personal. So we're going to be talking about the hard things. Grief, advice, friendships, moms, all of it. So we reached back out to the one and only Cheryl Strayed. You know her as the best-selling author of Wild, host of the Dear Sugars podcast, and just all-around amazing person. She hopped back on the phone with Bustle Senior Books editor Christina Ariola to talk about the hard stuff. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that this is going to be our last episode of the season. We will be coming out with little mini apps for the next few weeks, and then we'll be back with a whole new season. But in the meantime, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss anything. We've got some exciting stuff on the way. Okay, so let's get started. Here's Christina Ariola and Cheryl Strayed. All right. Hey, Cheryl. Hi. Oh my God, this is so bizarre. I feel like I have talked to you so many times because I listened to the podcast. <laughs> I, You know, it's so funny. I get that so often. People I'll meet in real life will be like, I feel like I know you because I know the sound of your voice. Yeah, I've been a longtime fan. Oh, thank you. Thank <laughs> you so much. That's so sweet. So I had a very personal come to Cheryl moment. I lost my mom about two years ago, and I was actually talking about it with another member of the Dead Moms Club, I guess you would call it, Uh, Mm -hmm. the club no one wants to be a part of. And she told me, you have to read Cheryl Strayed. And I was like, "Uh, you know, okay. Like at that point, I was very much in the mindset that there was no book that existed that could in any way come close to describing how I felt. I kind of like begrudgingly accepted her copy of Tiny Beautiful Things. She sent one to Mm. me. She bought it for me. And it just completely changed my life. It's I think I started reading it about six months after my mom died, and I became like a Cheryl Strait evangelist at that point. I was like telling everyone to read Cheryl Strait whenever anyone loses someone, if they are going through a heartbreak. It's been a very big part of my life and consequently my friends' lives. So (laughs) thank you. Thank you so much. I, I so appreciate that. And I'm sorry that you had to find me through your grief rather than your joy. But um, I know in those months after my mom died, when I was just reeling, you know, there's, it's so hard to even see clearly. What I turned to was literature, essentially. I mean, in some ways, the reason that I've written so much about grief in all of my books is that like, you know, I just never, I didn't find that story out there that reflected my own experience when it came to how much I loved my mom and how much I grieved my mom. When I was writing some of those things that I wrote in in my first book, Torch and Wild and Tiny Beautiful Things, like, you know, I was writing them thinking, I've never heard anyone say this to me. Uh, I must be weird or strange to be saying these things about my grief. So it wasn't so much that I was finding grief narratives in the literature I read, but rather simply finding consolation in the stories of other people. And And when you read stories of other people in literature, inevitably you read about their suffering, you read about 
who they love and who they lost and how they kept living. And that's what I needed to know. I was rereading Wild. I had originally read Wild before my mom died. And I reread it in preparation for this interview. And one of the things that had just sort of completely escaped my notice the first time I read it is that you started this hike four years after your mom died. And it was still such a big present part of your everyday experience. Do you think that grief is something that ever goes away? Or what do you wish people understood about the grieving process and how long it takes? Yeah, I think it never goes away. I, you know, what did, can I ask you, what, what did your mom die of? Um, so it was actually unexpected. She fell down a flight of stairs and the blunt force trauma killed her. Oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. As you say, that it's a club that that nobody wants to join. And it's a club that most, a lot of people, especially young people, just never occurs to them that they will join it. And that is how I felt after my mom died. I was like, what? What? It didn't ever occur to me that my mom would die young. She died when she was 45. And it, it, I, I just assumed that I would have my mom in my life and she'd be an old lady. And, you know, I just had that image in my mind. So to answer your question, you know, what what do people not understand about grief or how, how could we really help people who are grieving better is, is to acknowledge that, you know, when somebody dies before their time, uh, it, it sort of takes a lifetime to get used to that or to accept that or to come to terms with that. The initial phase for me was of deep suffering. And yeah, four years out, I decided to go hike the Pacific Crest Trail because you know, in those years after my mom died, in my sorrow, also I was in my 20s, I was trying to figure out who I was. There was this sense of like, how do I live without my mother? And I don't want to. So I'm going to rage against it. And my hike on the PCT, I think, was like the entryway into the next phase of grief, which was accepting that it was true, that my mom was dead, and it was going to hurt always. And that has remained true. It hurts in different ways. I maybe cry two or three times a year now. It used to be two or three times a day, right? And at first it was two or three times an hour. It does change, but it always stays with you. And I think that that really, that truth, that experience, and I know I'm not alone in that experience, it runs contrary to the American narrative of life, which is bad things happen and you get over them and move on. What I'm proposing when I talk about grief or write about grief is that that both things can be true at once, that you can move on, you can accept what happened and uh, come to some terms with it, and you'll always carry it with you. One of my favorite essays of yours is The Black Ark of It, which is, you know, written by this fiancé who um, is curious about how he can almost better support his fiancé whose mother has died. Yeah. Um, which is just so beautiful. Like, you read it and you're like, this guy is just like the guy you want on your team. It's a Dear Sugar letter. Somebody wrote, a, a man who was about to get married to a woman whose mother had died wrote to me. That's right. Imagine, what a great partner who's what a actually great partner. concerned. Yeah. Yeah. And there's there's this line in there in your response where you talk about how, you know, there's not going to be a mom in her wedding. You know, there won't be a mom there when your kids are born at any major life event for the rest of your life. And that to me was kind of one of those like moments where it clicked and it kind of became real because I started imagining, you know, all the things that I would like to do that my mom won't be there for. And so I'm curious, I mean, your mom died when you were 22, I believe. Mm -hmm. And what was it like going through so many of those major life experiences, getting married, having kids? You know, what was the grief like in those moments? Crushing. 
enormous. And it's still ongoing. That's the thing about life is you keep living and, and things keep happening and they keep happening without that person who was essential to you. I say to my kids all the time how much they would love their grandmother, how much she would have loved them. It's always a sorrow that I carry. And I think that that's, that's the piece of it. And this is the advice I gave to this man who wrote to me in the Black Archivist. I said, you know, the deal is this, you, you can be happy. You can celebrate and feel triumphant and proud and ecstatic and all the things that we feel uh, at these milestones, you know, marriage and in my case, the publication of my books or exciting things that have happened. The joy sits along the sorrow. It's always there. Whether your partner says so or not, the best thing you can do is to acknowledge that absence, acknowledge that sorrow that she carries with her through every milestone. There isn't a good or bad thing that happens to me that I don't think, usually just to myself, that I wish my mom were here to see this or to help me through this. There are certain friends uh, who are sensitive to, or you know, aware of that in me. On Mother's Day, the friends who reach out and say, I know you're thinking of your mom. I know that this holiday is complicated for you. Just that simple acknowledgement that that exists, that I that my dead mother is there and present for me is really helpful and consoling. Yeah. What about you? Do you what how does what's your relationship with Mother's Day? Oh, Mother's Day is so hard. Usually day of is actually not that bad, but for some reason the lead up to it yeah. is so stressful and so devastating. I've had breakdowns and like greeting card aisles. I have to set up the filters on my inbox so I don't get any of like the Mother's Day sale content. But luckily, I too am surrounded by very good people. My roommate gave me this like beautiful bamboo plant and wrote me this like really sweet card. My friends this year went hiking with me. But you know, I have had experiences during my first Mother's Day without a mom. I was dating a guy and, and we'd been dating for a while, like four or five months, and he just did not acknowledge it. He didn't check in to see if I was okay. He like I think just felt so awkward about it that he kind of went the opposite direction and decided not to say anything. Yeah. I get it. You know, death is awkward. Grief is even worse. So a question for you is, you know, as someone who is the friend of someone who is grieving, what can you do to be there for someone? Is it just as simple as being like, hey, I'm here for you? Yeah, I think it's more complicated than I'm here for you because a lot of times people will say they're here for for you, and then they aren't. <laughs> so, you know, I think it's fine to say I'm here for you, but then you need to be here. And and I think it's all about keeping that dialogue open and saying, what would you like? What would be helpful to you? My favorite thing when I need that kind of care is for people to actually just allow me to talk about my mom and to, to be curious about my mom and to, you know, ask me questions in the same way that they would if she were alive. Because, you know, our culture, especially around grief, we have generations upon generations upon generations of people who have been taught that you do not talk about difficult subjects. And when somebody dies, that's a bad thing. And it will only upset the, the person who's grieving if we mention the dead person. And I think that that's terrible. That's a terrible you know way of thinking about grief, because, of course, all that does is isolate the person who's grieving you know, most people who are grieving need some kind of outlet so that they can, in some ways, bring that beloved person who's died back 
back into life, to bring them into the space again, because it's there. That person is there. My mother is always beside me. And when somebody acknowledges that, I feel heard, I feel loved, and I feel supported. And and I don't think I'm alone in that. But there are other times that, you know, maybe the person in grief doesn't want to talk. And then you'd be a good friend to help them by way of distraction. Okay, let's let's go hiking on Mother's Day instead of sit around at a place where all these moms and their kids are having brunch, right? You know, so there are all kinds of things you can do to support the person who's grieving, but it always starts with listening to them. So has that been a process for you to kind of learning how to communicate what you need in different moments of your grief? Yeah. And I mean, I think too, in fairness, you know, I, I, it's so much easier to condemn others. You know, I've, I've like you, I've been on the other end of both tremendous kindness and, and tremendous indifference and kind of boneheadedness. You know, the person who doesn't, you know, say anything to you on Mother's Day, even though you're dating him or, you know, I mean, those things can feel incredibly harsh and mean. And my reaction when you tell me that story is like, oh, you know, end that relationship. But but I don't think that's entirely fair because it's true that, you know, culturally, we're not given a very good education when it comes to how do you help people in grief. And so, you know, I almost always try to give people a second chance or the benefit of the doubt I think it's especially important to learn how to speak in the moment. In my advice on my Dear Sugars podcast, I'm always trying to help people be braver and clearer when it comes to using their words to say what they need. And I do think that, you know, when you're in grief, it it can be very helpful to those around you who do have good intentions to be more expressive, you know, to say to that boyfriend, you know what, Mother's Day is coming up and my heart is hurting and I see that you're awkward around this or you're silent around this or you're ignoring that and that's hurting me more. So what can we do as a couple? Like how can how can we address this? And and then, you know, maybe he, the the person isn't going to be for you because he doesn't know how to do that. But maybe it's that he needed you to break through that kind of awkwardness. Yeah, and it's almost like because grief is such an extreme emotion that you kind of end up stumbling upon some other emotional truths about yourself in the process of learning how to navigate it. Yeah, absolutely. So it's weird because it's like, yeah, the two years since I've lost my mom have been really devastating and really sad, but they've also been really joyful and I've really learned a lot about myself and I really feel like like I'm a much better person now than I was two years ago because, you know, I've had to do so much healing work. Um, yeah. Do you feel like that was true for you as well or has been true for you? Of course. Yeah. No, I mean, that that's the, the really, really profound and painful truth about my mom's death is that, is that it's the, it's the hardest, saddest, ugliest thing that happened to me. And it's also the source that deep wound has been the source of so much beauty, so much light, so much that I have, frankly, you know, made into art and given back to the world, uh, has you know, in a way that's extremely positive in my life, has been, um, has sprung from that extremely negative experience. I think that that's what we're supposed to do, to say, I'm going to take this ugly thing and make it beautiful. And that is a healing act. A lot of the advice that you give both to people who are grieving and people who are dealing with people who are grieving is really just about emotional bravery, right? I think that one of the lines in the Black Arc of it is have the guts to feel lame. 
Um, yeah. which is just one of my favorite Cheryl Strayed quotes that I kind of quote <laughs> to myself you. all the time, have the guts to feel lame. There is just sort of this idea of emotional bravery as not always being like this big gesture, but just about, you know, the small things, about feeling awkward, but doing it anyway. One of my favorite messages that I received after my mom died were, was from a woman who I hadn't spoken to for many years, um, but she had lost her father and she reached out to me and was like, whatever you need, if you want someone to talk to, I can order you a pizza. And she like wrote that in the message. She was like, send me your address. <laughs> I'll send you a pizza. And it was just like such like a like, I just loved that so much. Just this idea of like, whatever you need, like I can do this from here. Like I am here to help you in whatever way I can. It's so, you know, stuff like ordering a pizza. I mean, I'll take a pizza anytime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got your heart broken? I'll send you a pizza. Like, and I'm yeah, on my exactly. way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've talked so much about how isolating grief can be. Why do you think that for you, you kind of had to go on this solo hike to kind of deal with this experience that is already so isolating? I think for me, that was about recentering myself, finding my strength again. And I innately knew that that in order to do that, I had to be alone. And I had to do something that felt like a rite of passage, you know, that I was going to be put through the fire, if you will, on every level, physically, spiritually, emotionally. And you almost always emerge from those kinds of experiences with a more centered sense of your own strength. And that's what I got. But it wasn't the end of the story. You know, it's not like I hiked the trail. And then I was like, you know what, I'm not grieving anymore. It's okay that my mom is dead. As I wrote in the black arc of it, it'll never be okay. The hike was about, however, me being okay. It wasn't okay, but I would be. How old are you? I am 26. 26. Okay, so you were 24 when your mom died? Uh, yeah, I just turned 25. Right. Okay. So yeah, I mean, you know, you're in you're in the midst of a tumultuous decade whether whether you're aware of that now. I'm I'm <laughs> aware. Not. I'm aware of it. <laughs> you know, I mean, you you get you get through your 20s and then you look back and you're like, wow, you know, a lot happened. And what happens in your 20s is that you you're really figuring you're you're coming into your adulthood. It doesn't happen overnight. You're, you're, it takes a decade or so to really step into the fullness, I guess, of your of your adulthood. The hike part of it was that too, just simply that I needed to learn how to, to be a woman in the world. But when I finished hiking the trail and started really writing quite seriously about my grief, what happened was, you know, is that suddenly I found people through my writing who felt like I did, who would say things to me like, you wrote my experience. And that was also powerfully healing, that connecting with people. Yeah, and now there is such a big, beautiful community that has formed because of you. How does that feel to kind of have been such a guiding light for so many people? It feels like the most important thing I've done professionally, you know, for sure. You know, a lot of exciting things have happened in my writing life, but the most exciting of all is is absolutely that that emotional resonance that all of those people coming to me and saying, you changed my life. It's like, okay, you know, this bad thing happened to me. I'm sad that my mom is dead, but I'm not alone in that experience. Other people know this too. And they've managed to bear it. When, and every time I, I meet somebody who ha 
has that story, it gives me a little strength as well. One question that you asked me earlier, and I want to ask back to you, what is Mother's Day like for you now, especially that you have kids? So yeah, is it kind of like a mixture of joy and grief every time? Yeah, it is. You start to see the cards and you start to hear the ads that are like, that make a lot of assumptions. I mean, and one thing I've learned too, a lot of assumptions, not just about having a living mother, you know, which is a hard thing when you have a dead mother, um, but even having a good mother. I've come to be really aware of the many people who have lost their moms in other ways, to drug addiction, to mental illness, abusive relationships, people who, for whatever reason, either never had the good mother that, that I got to have, and it sounds like you got to have, or have become estranged from their moms. And that's a different kind of very complicated grief. But then, you know, I became a mom and realized that my kids wanted to celebrate me, especially after they got old enough to know what Mother's Day was. I realized I had to kind of let go, like be more private about my sense of Mother's Day being like a holiday I dread. And in fact, allow my kids to have, you know, to take joy in honoring me on that day you know, it's a celebration. And, and there's a point in the day usually that I'll tell them about my mom again, tell them some story maybe they never heard. And I'll tell them how I'm feeling, that, that I miss my mom and that I always think of her. And that's, I think, really a cool piece of the day because it, again, models for my kids the ways that joy and sorrow can sit next to each other as they almost always do. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And that's such a beautiful way to pay tribute to your mom on that day, too, is to, you know, pass on a little bit of her memory with your kids. Yeah. You said before that, you know, you're not you're not a wounded person because of this. And that's very much how I feel. I don't feel wounded. I feel like this is something that has very much informed who I am and that I will always carry with me. But that doesn't necessarily have to be a sad thing all the time. No, it actually gives you tremendous light because you are able to have more comp- a deeper compassion for others who relate to your experience. And, you know, I've turned all of that that pain into into not just healing myself, but, you know, through my writing, trying to actually be a healing force. Yeah, absolutely. And even your essays that aren't about grief are so informed by your own personal experiences. And that's always been the best part of Dear Sugar to me is this idea that, you know, you've been there, that you've maybe not felt everything that the person has felt, but some variation of it. And that, you know, right. you're, you're choosing to use it as a force for light. Yeah. Which I really love. Turn your sorrow into your superpower. Oh, I love that. 
<laughs> awesome. So I think we're wrapped up with the grief questions. Um, but just because, you know, this podcast is for women in their 20s, we just wanted to ask some quick questions about how to get through our 20s. Okay. So what would be your best piece of advice for getting over a broken heart? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, I, I think probably the most useful thing is to, to really remember that as much as it hurts now, it's not going to hurt that much later. That almost always there's a reason that, uh, you know, that your heart is broken. It's because that relationship was not really meant to last. That either you weren't as into it as you need to be or you, or the person who... Uh, who did the breaking up with you wasn't into it as he or she needs to be. And, and that you do need to just let time pass and know that it's not going to be so painful later, that you're probably going to look back and feel grateful that the relationship ended. I know that you're right about that, but oh, that is the hardest piece of advice. <laughs> I know. Patience is know, the worst. <laughs> I know, but it's like, you know, I think that that's, I think it's really important that we practice having perspective, which which I know sounds almost impossible to do because you can only have perspective, right? When you've got some distance from it. But sometimes just the reminder to yourself that there are things that I cannot see now can be helpful, I think. So to say like, it feels now like the world is ending, but but my higher intelligence knows that it isn't that it will be okay in the end. And I will not be in such pain down the road. Yeah, I like that. So what would be your single piece of advice for people who maybe don't know what they want to do with the rest of their life? You know, I think when there's that sense of confusion and where am I going next, it's always wise to just say, okay, since I don't know what to do, I'm going to do the things that make me feel good, especially in the direction of generosity and creativity. Okay. So I don't think it's a good idea to say it makes me feel good to, you know, drink four shots of tequila every night or whatever, you know, that's, that's like short term good. I mean, good on the deepest level, seek out the things that make you feel good on the deepest level. And, and my, my experience is that when you do that, those directions are, you know, paths are revealed because you are seeking, you know, you're actually pursuing something that's both interesting to you and enlightening. And those things tend to, to lead to other things. All right. And then just one more. What didn't you know in your 20s that you wish you had known? Oh, gosh, these are so hard, such hard questions. Uh, well, you know that the title of my book, Tiny Beautiful Things, you probably know the column yeah. in that, you know, that title column is a letter to myself in my 20s. So I'm 49. You know, I'm about to really move into this next decade of my 50s, which seems so gloriously grown up that I can't tell you how happy I am to be turning that age. <laughs> But, you know, and, and and it's because I have finally learned the lesson that it took me a long time to learn that I wish I had known in my 20s. And that is that you don't have to be pleasing to everyone to have love, that you don't have to be the person who makes everyone happy at your own expense, that that kind of praise or love or attention you get from doing what everyone else wants you to do is really false and shallow, and it'll sap your energy and it'll suck your, the life force out of you, that you get to be part of the equation. And in fact, maybe you you are the equation, you know, that you plus you adds up to you. And I don't mean that in a selfish way. What I mean is, I think in every area of my life, 
I spent a lot of time wondering what other people hoped I would be, how pretty I would be, or how sweet I would be, or how I would say yes to things that I didn't really want to say yes to. That there was a kind of performative aspect that didn't serve me. And when I shifted slowly throughout my 30s and 40s into being more authentically me, really good things came. And I actually got deeper love and I got more meaningful experiences and interactions. I did more meaningful work. Yeah, that's amazing advice. And I'm really grateful that it wasn't go on a 2000 mile hike. Because <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I'm not prepared to do that. <laughs> oh, but this, the thing I just described is such a longer and harder it's journey. A, it's a much harder journey. <laughs> it is. And I'm, you know, and I'm still on it too. I mean, I am. I, I still, that's the thing too. It's like, you know, I, I still struggle with some of the same stuff I struggled with in my 20s. It's, you know, some of this stuff, it's like grief. It's, you carry it with you for forever and it changes over time. It gets easier over time, but it, it, you're always on the journey. I love you plus you equals you. I'm always gonna remember that. <laughs> All right, well, thank you, Cheryl. I don't have any further questions, but this was such a joy to speak with you. It really was a dream come true. Oh, thank you. I loved talking to you as well. That was amazing. I am such a Cheryl super fan. Thanks so much, Christina, for doing that incredible interview. So that's it for now. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes. And if you want to continue the conversation, which I definitely want you to do, you can join us on Facebook in the Bustle Huddle Facebook group. The Bustle Huddle is produced by Julia Shu, Michaela Heck, and Anna Parsons. I'm your host, Caitlin Aber, and I'll see you in a little bit.